I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be considering four verses there. We want everybody to be able to follow along, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, and if you need a Bible, get their attention so that you can follow along. Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to make mention of the time that we have now and the time we're going to have together in this, this hour. The time is affected because it is now about 10.08. We started about 10 minutes late, which means I'm getting up about 10 minutes later than I normally do. We normally get done around 10.45. So you can expect that it'll probably be past 10.45. And when it hits 1045, there's just sort of a natural inclination. People just shut you off. So I'm just urging you not to do that. Be prepared for that uh, ahead of time. And here's a bonus for you, though. Uh, we are not having our second hour today uh, so that you can get a jump on what's supposed to be more snow uh, still coming. So after we're finished here, uh, we will be we will be finished, except I think we still went ahead and prepared Cafe Community, right? So there are bagels out there, and there is coffee out there, and thanks to Ed and Sharon, I contacted them this morning uh, to let them know that we might be canceling second hour, but they had dutifully already gone and gotten the uh, bagels and were uh, readily preparing those. So that's there. You can uh, grab some of that then after this hour, but we will not be having our, our second hour uh, today. And that will also help our instrumentalists and our vocalists who have been preparing diligently over the last many weeks for our Christmas uh, service on Christmas Day, our worship service at 11 o'clock that day. And they've been practicing after we're done at noon each Sunday the last few weeks for about an hour and a half. So they've been here till about 1.30. So those of you that are involved in that, uh, as soon as we're done here, if you want to grab a bagel, you can do that, and then you can start your uh, rehearsal earlier. Philippians chapter 2 today. Most of you know that my dad was a preacher, and during his ministry, he made a good number of pastor friends from other churches. He died when I was 11, and I recall that for several months after that, we visited some of the churches where my dad's friends pastored. And we did that in part because my mom was having a hard time emotionally being in the building where my dad had preached for so many years. She was eventually able to come back, but for a while we visited other churches while our family was healing. So for a while we cycled through some of these churches on Sundays and even midweek, visiting each one several times during this period. There was one in particular that I dreaded going to. Every time we went there, the pastor, Brother Tucker, would ask my little brother and me to sing. Now, this request was really asking me to sing, because whenever the two of us, Billy and I, got up in front, Billy was a deer in the headlights. He would move his mouth, but no sound actually came out. So one time before we visited that church, I said, Mom, he always asks us to sing, and it's a bunch of people we don't know, and I really don't want to, so can you tell him that we'd rather not? And she agreed that she would do that. So we get there, and Brother Tucker greets us, and like always, he looks at me and he says, Hey, how about you boys sing for us tonight? I don't say anything because I've made a deal with my mother, now stage manager, who I'm sure is going to speak up at any moment. I look at her, and she's become a deer in the headlights as well. 
And the silence was finally broken when Brother Tucker said what he always would say when he saw my hesitance. He would say, you know, Jesus died for you. <laughs> my head is down and I peek at my mom out of the corner of my eye and finally she speaks up. But not to him, but to me. My precious mom, sweetest thing in the world, wonderful Christian woman, salt of the earth, says, what do you think? (laughs) And I'm thinking, what do I think? You lied to me is what I think. (laughs) So once again, my brother and I trotted off to practice a few bars. And during the service, the two of us stood before the congregation and one of us actually sang. Now, what Brother Tucker would say has stuck with me over the years. In effect, he was saying, you should endure discomfort and inconvenience for the sake of others. Because after all, remember what Christ did for you. Now, the theme of the book of Philippians, together for the gospel. And we've been brought together For a purpose is what the book of Philippians is telling us, to advance the cause of the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 5 speaks of our partnership in the gospel. But whenever you get people together, they can easily come apart. As selfishness and pettiness and mixed agendas and pride and the full range of sinful human tendencies is brought into that mix. So how do we remain united? How do we stay together for the gospel in the midst of such potential strife? How do we pursue the relationships that God has given us in a way that enhances the advance of the gospel rather than detracts from it? How do we live and serve selflessly rather than selfishly? Well, the Bible's answer is the same as that of Brother Tucker when he said that to me about 44 years ago. Remember what God has done for us. And we're going to see that together today from Philippians 2. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for bringing this group of brothers and sisters together on this Lord's Day in your presence, bringing us together safely with the weather that has somewhat surprised us, but none of it's a surprise to you. And each winter, though we know it's coming, I find myself, we find ourselves somewhat unprepared. But Lord, you have prepared this time for us. And it is an appointment with you and an appointment on your eternal calendar for us to be here. So we ask you, Lord, to settle then our our minds and our hearts. And help us in these moments to focus on your word. And help us, Lord, to come away better equipped and more devoted to serving you as we serve each other in this great cause of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week in your program, we insert an outline for the message, and we've got one for you this week. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take that out, and we'll get to that in just a bit. Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, wrote 12 others in your New Testament. And in those books, he was so concerned about this matter of disunity and its potential danger in every church. He was so concerned about it that he addressed it to some extent in every one of his nine letters to churches. He wrote 13, but nine of them 
were to, to churches. The other four were written to individuals, individuals like Philemon and Titus and, and Timothy. And I want to go through and give you a sampling of what he said to those churches about this issue. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. He later penned a second letter to that same church, and he said, I'm afraid that when I come, I may find discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. In the next chapter of that second letter to Corinth, he said, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Now, at the time that Paul wrote the book that we're considering, Philippians, at the time he wrote that to the church at Philippi, he was in Rome. And he was under arrest for preaching the gospel, and he was awaiting a life or death verdict. And to that church in Rome, he wrote at another time. May God give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So to the church, the church at Corinth and to the church at Rome, but also to the churches in the province of Galatia. He wrote the book of Galatians and he said in it, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Even to the church at Ephesus, where the book of Acts tells us Paul had spent three years and he said at the end of those three years in Acts chapter 20, I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. To that church, he said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What's that look like? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Those words, make every effort, are from a Greek word that means persistent effort. Spiritual unity must be constantly cultivated and preserved with selfless devotion and with, with energy. To the church at Colossae, he said, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And even in that, and now lastly, that model church at Thessalonica, he still felt the need to challenge them to greater love in their relationships with one another. In his first letter to them, he said, about your love for one another, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And then in his second letter, he said, the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So with all of that, friends, do you get the idea that unity and quality relationships in the church are extremely important in the Bible? Of this, one commentator has said, this unity that the word of God so highly exalts is inward, not outward. 
It's internally desired, not externally compelled. It is spiritual, not ecclesiastical, more heartfelt than creedal. It is not grounded in sentimentalism, but in careful, thoughtful, and determined obedience to God's will. It is the spirit-motivated and spirit-empowered bonding of the hearts, minds, and souls of God's children to each other. And preserving unity in the church is not an option. Now we see that unity displayed in the very first church in Jerusalem, which included thousands of new believers, most of them previously strangers to one another, some of them perhaps even former enemies. But Acts chapter 2 tells us about that, that church and its disposition. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That same chapter in the book of Acts tells us that this infant church and those who came to Christ, like us, were given the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit in believers that provides the internal power and will to defer to others and to pursue this unity that God requires. I came across this analogy this week as I was studying our passage. Consider a bag filled with marbles. There are many marbles of various colors and sizes and composition, and they're packed closely together in the bag. But they're bound together exclusively by this exterior container. If the bag is opened or it's ripped, the marbles are going to spill out in all directions because there's nothing internal that binds them to each other. In contrast, consider a magnet. A magnet that's placed into a pile of iron shavings. By their nature, those shavings respond to the power of the magnet and they're drawn together. If some outside force causes them to be pulled apart, the attractive force remains and they will reunite as soon as that separating cause is removed. In the same way, faithful Christians who are separated by circumstances beyond their control, they will still maintain their mutual attraction through the similar magnetic power of the Spirit working within them. Like a close human family that's tragically divided by war or natural disaster, they will continually seek to be reunited as the spiritual family they are. That divinely empowered internal unity of the Spirit is essential to the church's joy and effectiveness. But although our oneness in Christ is something permanent that we have by virtue of having the Holy Spirit in common, Therefore, it's permanent. The human frailty that we're still subject to makes our unity fragile. It's for that reason that Paul counseled the Ephesians, as we saw earlier, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so now, yet again, in the church at Philippi, he's writing about the need for Christian unity. And we're going to see that our reason reason for doing the hard thing Our reason for deferring to one another and working to maintain unity is because of what God has done for us. Now, if it's something that was written about to every church in the New Testament, then it's certainly something to which our church should give heed. Not necessarily because there are particular problems. 
but because it's so easy for problems to develop if we don't proactively think and behave in ways that foster unity and deter disunity. Bear in mind in what one commentator has said. The church at Philippi was for the most part theologically sound. Devoted, moral, loving, zealous, courageous, prayerful, and generous. Yet it faced the danger of discord that often is generated by only a few people. Such troublemakers can stir up the contention and strife that fractures an entire congregation. And because disunity is so tragically debilitating, Paul gently but firmly pleads with believers to be constantly and diligently on guard against it. He had just expressed to the Philippians Back in chapter 1 and verse 27, his hope that he would hear about them, that they stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And now he is, in chapter 2, encouraging them to this diligence in unity together. So why should we do this? The Bible's big on it, as I think I've shown. It's very important to God, very important in Scripture. Why should you do this? Why should I do it? In your outline, I say firstly, Christian unity is pursued by a worthy life. Christian unity is pursued by a worthy life. Now, here's why I say that. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete By being like-minded. Now, it starts, verse 1 does, with therefore. And that connects what follows with what has gone before. In particular, it's connecting what we just read back to chapter 1 and verse 27 that says, whatever happens, literally only conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. A worthy life is a consistent life, a life consistent with our calling and our citizenship, which is in heaven. And following verse 27 in the passage we saw last week, we're given the fruits or the effects of a life worthy of the gospel. For example, it says that lives worthy of the gospel in verse 27 will result in standing together for it. So with the word therefore at the beginning of verse 1, it's now returning To take on that theme again. That theme of conduct that's worthy of the gospel. Now it's chapter 2. And so you may think that it's starting a completely new thought. But again, therefore is connecting it with what precedes. And remember, we didn't have chapter and verse divisions when the Bible was originally written. Grammatically, these are, are connected. And so... The whole unit, chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 2, and verse 4, could be paraphrased this way. I have a single desire, says Paul, that your daily life should match the worth of the gospel. Without such a life, you're never going to be able to hold your ground against the world, strong in what God has done for you, unanimous, jointly working for your common faith. But such steadfastness does have great results. It convicts the world and it convinces you. It condemns the world. It confirms the church. Therefore, make my joy full, verse 2 of chapter 2, by being of the same mind. 
So this linking of chapter 1 and verse 27 and then the completing my joy by being of the same mind in chapter 2 and verse 2 shows that the central characteristic of a worthy life is a life of unity with others in the gospel enterprise. The central characteristic of a worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel, someone who's conducting themselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel, is that this is someone who's committed to being unified with his or her brothers and sisters so that the gospel will advance. Whatever you do, whatever happens, this one thing is paramount if you're to live worthy of the gospel, and that's that you be unified. And the second part of verse 27 of chapter 1 says, you will then stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Christian unity then is necessary if we're to stand in the face of external opposition. But also if we're going to avoid internal disruption within the church, problems in the church that threaten to derail progress in the gospel. Paul had seen firsthand the harm that it can do by what he was seeing of what was going on in the church at Rome. Remember, he's at Rome when he writes this. And you remember if you go back to chapter 1, Beginning in verse 15, verses 15 through 18, he talks about what's happening there. And he said, some there are, according to verse 15, preaching the gospel, but they are doing so out of jealousy of Paul and rivalry with his ministry as they pursue, according to verse 17 of chapter one, selfish ambition. He sees this happening in Rome. But the warning signs are also there for the church in Philippi that he's writing to So he turns from dealing with external threats to the gospel at the end of chapter 1 to those that are inside the church. When we get to chapter 4 several weeks from now, we're going to see that Paul mentions two women by name. Two women who are at odds with each other and it's causing a problem for the church in Philippi. So again, chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. This matter of unity is so important that Paul says his joy is incomplete until he knows that the Christians in Philippi are living in harmony with one another so that nothing hinders the gospel or misrepresents Christ. Now, he's already expressed joy about them. These Christians in Philippi, back in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Always in all of my prayers for all of you, I give thanks with joy for your partnership in the gospel. So he's already expressed joy about them, saying he prays with joy every time he remembers them. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he rejoices because the gospel is being proclaimed. And at the end of that verse, he says he's going to continue to rejoice, whether he's released from prison or he's sentenced to die. He has joy when he thinks about God's work in them in the past, and he rejoices even while so-called Christian ministers preach with impure motives and in competition with Paul. And he's going to rejoice no matter the outcome of his trial in Rome. But his joy will not be complete apart from evidence of full unity in the church at Philippi. He's a very joyful guy. 
but it's still incomplete without knowing that you're contending and striving together as one. He's concerned about them, but he's mostly concerned about how they will help or hinder the advance of the gospel. And disunity is the most sure way to harm the cause of Christ. Christian unity, friends, is pursued by a worthy life. I say in your outline as well, Christian unity is motivated by, and then we're going to see the things that are listed in verse 1 that are to motivate this unity. These realities that are listed in verse 1, there are four of them, are each stated with an if, which when we read it sounds like it's an open question as to whether the statement is in fact true of the Philippians. If you are united to Christ, and if you are in God's love, and if you share in the Spirit, But the way it's written in Greek indicates that these are assumed to be facts. You are united to Christ and you are in God's love and you do enjoy participation with the Spirit. So make my joy complete. So Christian unity is motivated by those realities in our lives. And I have them listed for you in the outline. Motivated by first our union with Christ. Again, verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you are united with Christ, this union with Christ is true of every genuine believer in Jesus. Everybody who has a relationship with God, who has been born again, been saved, is united with Christ, according to the Bible. The Bible says there are many blessings that accrue to the believer because of our union with Christ, just a couple examples. Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because of our union with Christ, because our life is now his life, his perfect righteous life, there is now therefore no room for condemnation for those who are united with him. Ephesians chapter 1 says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, notice, in Christ. So you have this union with Christ and therefore you should have this encouragement that motivates you toward oneness. This encouragement, according to one commentator, means to come alongside someone to give assistance by offering comfort, counsel or exhortation. Paul says, in effect, shouldn't the divine influence of Christ in your life compel you to preserve the unity that's so precious to him? Just like Brother Tucker would say to me, think about what Jesus did for you. Paul is saying, think about what Jesus did for you. Think about the fact that because of him, you are united with him. You have a union with Christ. And because of that, then, it should motivate you to pursue diligently what's important to him. Namely, this unity of those in his family. Christian unity is motivated by our union with Christ. Secondly, It's motivated by the love of the Father. Verse 1 says, If there's any comfort from His love. Now the NIV says any comfort from His love, and it's just mentioned our union with Christ, and so you would take that then as Christ's love, if there's any comfort from Christ's love. But in fact, the Greek does not have the word His. 
It's just if you have any comfort from love. So whose love? Well, it's probably the love of God the Father. Since the prior phrase refers to Christ and the next one we're going to see refers to the Spirit. And we have similar language elsewhere that involves all three persons of the triune God. Second Corinthians 13 says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. So the expositor's Bible commentary says most likely it refers to God's love for them, placed as it is between clear references to Christ and the Spirit. And you have similar language in other places in the Bible. So if you have any comfort from the Father's, the Father's love. This word that's translated comfort comes from two Greek words. Para, which means with. And then muthia, which means to speak. So to speak with. This word for comfort means then to speak with, implying a conversation of encouragement, a gentle influence by words. It's to speak closely with someone with the added idea of giving comfort or solace to them. This intimate and undeserving love that God gives to his people continuously is to move us to gratitude and motivate us to love others. And that's why famously John says in 1 John chapter 4, We love because he first loved us. If you've experienced the love of the Father, then that love ought to motivate you to then love one another and move you toward unity. So Christian unity is motivated by our union with Christ, the love of the Father, and then I say in your outline, the fellowship of the Spirit. Because, verse 1 says, if there's any common sharing in the Spirit. Now that phrase common sharing it's a translation of a word that you're familiar with koinonia most of the time we translate koinonia fellowship it's used already in chapter 1 and verse 5 i thank god every time i remember you says paul because of your verse 5 of chapter 1 partnership in the gospel the word that's translated partnership is koinonia And I mentioned at that time, then it's not just a dinner together. It's not just a a, a get-together of any sort, but rather it is to have in common a common Lord and a common purpose. And that purpose is the advance of his work, the advance of the gospel. And so there's the koinonia of the gospel, chapter 1 and verse 5. And now here you have this common sharing, this fellowship in the Spirit. Every Christian is united with Christ. Every Christian has experienced the love of God the Father. And every Christian has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So every one of us has this in common. If you all have this in common, if you have this koinonia of the Spirit... And the Spirit is, as the Bible says, the seal of and the guarantor of our internal inheritance. He's the source of spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says He helps us in our weaknesses. If all of this is is true then, it should be an added additional motivation for us to pursue this unity. The proper response of believers should be a compelling motivation to maintain the unity of the Spirit with brothers and sisters who likewise have the Spirit. Christian unity is motivated by our union with Christ. 
The love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. And I say in your outline, it's motivated by the new heart of the believer. The new heart of the believer. So I'll explain what that means in a moment. But you see Paul is just piling it on here. (laughs) I mean, just piling on one reason after another. All of these things are true for you. So you have ample reason and no excuse for not pursuing at all costs the unity of the Spirit in the church. Verse 1 says, if there is any tenderness and compassion... Tenderness is the root. Compassion is the fruit. Tenderness can be translated as affection. It's the inner source of the emotions. It's equivalent to our use of heart as the seed of the feelings. We'll say, you know, something like heartfelt. I have a heartfelt love for you. We're talking about an emotional love for you when we say something like that. And so this tenderness is the inner source of the emotions. And then compassion is the feelings themselves, emotions reaching out towards another person. The individual then who is saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is made by them into a new creature with a new heart and new sensitivities. And this spurs them on to a new life with new relationships and new possibilities of identifying deeply with one another. It's another motive and another source than of our unity. 2 Corinthians 5 says famously, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Christian unity, brothers and sisters, is to be pursued by a worthy life. It's motivated by the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and it's motivated by the new life of the believer. And then I say in your outline as well, Christian unity is marked by shared purpose. It's marked by shared purpose. Verse 2 of chapter 2, make my joy complete. Here's how. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now you look at that again. Look at verse 2. Here's how you make my joy complete. Be like-minded. And then the last phrase is being of one mind. Okay. (laughs) He's saying essentially the same thing at the beginning and at the end. And then in between, you have having the same love and being one in, in spirit. So these two phrases of being like-minded and of one mind. They both speak of being focused on a unified purpose with a single goal. And what is that purpose and goal? Well, it's to glorify Christ and advance the gospel. The gospel was mentioned five times in the first chapter of Philippians. And in the fifth of those, chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then that's the theme all the way to chapter 2 and verse 18. It's the gospel that is central. And so being of like mind, being focused on the same thing. What is that thing? It is the gospel. And our thoughts control our actions. And our thoughts are to be set on the Great Commission, the advance of the gospel. We pursue that together so that we treat each other as beloved partners. 
We do what's in the best interest of each other. That is, we love each other and our souls are joined together. Verse two, when it says having the same love, we're going to do what's in the best interest of our partners in the gospel. We're going to be of one spirit. That is literally being of one spirit, being joined as souls together. So that what I do now hear this, what I do and what you do takes into account its effect on each other. I am not an independent contractor for Jesus. And you're not either. What you do affects us. We're together in this. How you prioritize your life is going to affect how effective we are in the mission. Whether you choose to sin and get derailed from the single focus that we're to have is going to affect everybody. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Why? Because the assumption is we're together. And what we do affects each other for good or for ill. Kent Hughes says this, these four commands are all about being gospel-oriented as we relate to and care for one another. So Christian unity, friends, is pursued by a worthy life. It's motivated by the work of God and the new life of the believer. It's marked by the shared purpose. And last, Christian unity is achieved by selflessness. It's achieved by selflessness. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In the first two verses, the verbs, the actions that are be to be taken are, they were all plural. But now in verses three and four, singular, the individual is the center of the picture now. The responsibility for the worthy life of unity is individual. You know, it's one thing to talk in generalities. You know, we all have this stuff in common and all these things have been given to us by Christ. And these are all these things that should happen. But now in verses 3 and 4, it's, it's singular. It's individual. It's personal. The responsibility for this worthy life is individual, personal. It's mine. And it's yours. Verse 3 is warning about a wrong attitude toward oneself in our aims. That is, in what we want to accomplish. It's saying none of that should be selfish, out of selfish ambition. None of it should be self-seeking. It's also warning regarding our attitude toward ourselves in the realm, not only of our aims, but in our assessment. That we are vain conceited, vain glory, some translations have it. That's empty glory. And then this is followed by a correct attitude toward ourselves. So we shouldn't have the the wrong aims. They should not be selfish aims. We shouldn't have the wrong assessment of ourselves, higher than we ought to think, empty glory, conceited, vain glory, as we compare and contrast ourselves to others. But then this is followed by a correct attitude toward oneself. In those same realms, in assessment, 
The end of verse 3 says it needs to be in humility as we assess ourselves. Not above others, not conceited, but rather placing myself under others. And also in the area of our aims. The right way to do this, according to verse 4, is looking to the interests of others, not our own interests. Friends, every time you mention the name of another brother or sister, it ought never to be in comparing and contrasting yourself to him or her. Or asking yourself why he or she doesn't do or why they do what they do in some sort of implied criticism. What we always ought to be thinking about ourselves is preferring others before ourselves. Thinking about others and how we can promote them and help them and prod them toward Christ's likeness in this great enterprise of the gospel. But most of us don't do that. And one of the reasons we don't do it is because most of us are legends in our own minds. (laughs) Oh man, our minds are a junkyard. The way we think about ourselves and the way in turn we think about other people. Man, you you just, none of us would want that mapped on the screen, would we? But you know, God sees it all. God knows how we're thinking about ourselves. How we're looking at other people. How we're assessing them and ourselves. What our end game is, our aims, is it selfish or is it in humility preferring others? Most of us are legends in our own minds, but we're too embarrassed ever to express it. So we just in the recesses of our minds think this way. But I just say to you, friends, whether you express it or not, it's still ungodly. The discipline of the mind is where the game is won or lost in the Christian life. And in particular, how I think about myself, in turn, how I see others, and all of that in relation to Christ. Some people have matured in that. A.T. Robertson was a renowned Greek scholar. He wrote a 1,400-page grammar of the Greek New Testament. He died in 1934. He was not only a Greek scholar, he was also the son-in-law of another scholar named John Broadus. If you visit uh, where Robertson is buried, you'll see a humble, flat grave marker next to a towering monument erected by the relatives of his father-in-law, Broadus. And the reason that this son-in-law is buried in this humble grave, humble marked grave next to his father-in-law, is because Robertson said he wanted to be buried in the shadow of his father-in-law. How many of us want to be in the shadow of anybody? Let alone an in-law. But here's the greatness from a human perspective of A.T. Robinson, the brilliance of A.T. Robertson, and yet the humility that Christ had engendered within him. Blaise Pascal was a literal genius. He was a mathematician, a philosopher, and a Christian. He concluded after much thought, quote, What amazes me most 
is to see that everyone is not amazed at his weakness. Chrysostom was one of the outstanding leaders of the 4th century church. He said, there is nothing so foreign to a Christian as arrogance. The conductor of a symphony orchestra was asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? He responded, second violin. I can find plenty of first violins. But to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. So one has said this, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Why does it take so much grace for that to happen? Because it's not our natural bent. We are naturally about us. But friends, we claim a Lord who put our interests before his own. Next week, as we look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, let this same attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for whom did he do that? And this is the Lord we profess. And if this is the Lord we profess, then the kinds of lives that we need to live are those that defer to others so that we are unified. And because we are unified, we can move as one man, the Bible says, in advancing the gospel. Here's your take-home truth. Commitment to the gospel is demonstrated by commitment to others. We can't say we're committed to the gospel if we're not committed to God's people first. That means some of us have got to reprioritize what we do, how we think, the stuff that we're pursuing that we think is important, but all of it less important than the gospel. Prioritizing God's people, prioritizing his church, prioritizing our own growth in him so that we can be a help to those people, all of it for the purpose of of advancing the gospel of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer then. Our Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather as your people, particularly under these weather circumstances. We miss our brothers and sisters who are not able to be here. But Lord, we thank you that we had this appointment with you. And to look at your word and to be reminded of all that you have done for us and in turn how we ought to respond. Lord, help us each individually to see that it, that it is up to me, it is up to us, each of us, to think accurately about who we are in relation to one another and all of that in relation to you. And Lord, as we do that then, may this be a place that's marked by the love that the Lord Jesus said will be the means by which all men know that we're his disciples. We love one another. Help us to show that visibly here. And as a result of that, may this unity of the Spirit be evident. There be no distractions and obstacles to our ability then to move forward the task that you have given us to advance the Great Commission. Lord, we ask that you would grant us each joy in the journey. Joy as we serve side by side with one another. 
people with different gifts and abilities, people with different backgrounds, but all of them by your sovereign providence brought together for such a time as this. Help us to see it that way. Help us to see each other that way. And thereby, joyfully unite together to carry out your work. We ask you to grant us safety, Lord, in the weather as we depart. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.